1: It's hard because so much of my identity was tied to our collective experience. Jubilee is the three of us and Jubilee project. And without one of us, we can't stand. And then suddenly I felt like I was like alone on a sinking ship. It was hard because I think I internalized a lot of it because I kind of thought, wait a second, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I'm not a good leader. Like maybe I'm not good enough And that's the reason why everyone is leaving. And that's when it really made me go through, you know, the season where I had to like, kind of like reevaluate my entire life actually. What if even this isn't what I'm supposed to do? It starts with just taking that leap
0: to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose
1: something that even if, fails, even if it
0: fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in that. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders, I'm Samuel Donner, and you were just listening to Jason Lee, the founder of Jubilee Media. So Jubilee is a digital media company that fosters empathy and in an increasingly divided world, that empathy is needed. Stumbling onto a video of Jason's is a quick way to lose track of time and restore some faith in humanity. With nearly seven million subscribers, Jubilee's original content captures meaningful human experiences and asks questions about how to engage and share with each other in greater, deeper, and more imaginative ways. With that word, imaginative, you're dipping into a big theme of this episode, fantasy. Not the unrealistic Disney fairy tale kind of fantasy, although that's definitely part of it. I'm talking fantasy as an aspiration and imagination. I mean, having a dream and turning that dream into reality. And although a great place to start Jason's story would be these dreams he cultivated in childhood, I actually want to explore the story before the story. The story of his parents, the first ones who dreamed of a different life of something more.
1: So both my parents are from Gwangju, which is a smaller city in Korea. And quite honestly, they met because they both had a love or a dream to... I guess do something larger or do something bigger. And the biggest thing, you know, I I think that they are very much they were very much in love and they are still. But one of the biggest things that I think that they shared was this desire to go to America to study or to explore what the future lied there for them. So that was one of the first things that I heard about like, you know, why did you guys fall in love? They fell in love really quickly. They ended up moving to America within think about a year of them meeting each other. It's quick
0: very uh, that's
1: yeah. <laughs> Um, So I think that that was always like part of that DNA of that relationship. And the other thing was always this idea of community and like, what does it mean to give back? Particularly on my mom's side, she was the youngest of four children and her parents, I don't know how they got this wealth, but they were really wealthy. So my grandparents on my mother's side, and rather than buying a big house or buying things, they actually started a school put all their money into that school. And it was this crazy thing that I learned later on. But when I visited, everyone was like so nice to me. I was like, why is everyone being so nice to me? And they're like, oh, this is your grandfather's school. I was like, oh my God, he started a school I had no idea. And I think that that really instilled in me this idea or this question of why are you here? What are you here to do? Like, how are you serving others? And like, how are we going to use your gifts to serve others better? Can you tell me about your
0: dad's promise to go to Disney World?
1: Yeah, when I was five years old, I loved Disney. I loved the movies. I loved the storytelling. I loved the magic, and I still do. But I just remember watching the films and just falling in love with the characters. And I remember one Christmas, we lived in Jersey at the time. My dad said, okay, if you're good and you do well in school, we're going to go down to Disney World. We're going to drive down to Orlando. And I was like, oh my God, this is the dream, right? And... Lo and behold, Christmas was coming around. He said, okay, you guys have been good. He put me and my brother and my mom, we, we all got in the station wagon. We started driving down. And um, when I was growing up, I had really bad asthma. And I remember as we were driving down, I started to have really bad asthma attacks. And it was like way worse than normal because we were like staying in hotel, uh, motels, honestly. Like I, a lot of it's triggered by dust. So I ended up in the hospital, actually. So I ended up in the hospital. They put me on, you know, a bunch of tubes and a bunch of breathing things. And I distinctly remember being in the hospital. And it was Christmas Eve. And I was like, oh, my God, how is Santa going to find me? Right. Like, there are definitely no chimneys here. Let alone, like, I'm sharing this random hospital room. Like, there's no way he's going to find me. Um, And, you know, of course, I still got my... uh, I I loved my Game Boy at the time. So I got a Tetris game. I remember being so excited. Finally, when I was discharged a couple of days after Christmas... The doctor said, yep, right back to New Jersey. You got to get back in bed, rest. And as soon as we pulled out of the parking lot, I remember my dad being like, yep, we're still going to Orlando. <laughs> we're headed to Disney <laughs> like, World. Yeah. And it was the most magical thing ever. We have our heading. Here we For me, I remember feeling from the
0: magic within our hearts.
1: Like this was a world where anything is possible.
0: Adventure beyond the
1: horizon. Where dreams can come true or heroes do succeed. And of course, you know, We look back at some of these films and some of these IP and you're like, oh, some of this is problematic. But still, as a child, I think the idea of dreaming is so important. And I think when we're children, honestly, is sometimes when we're the most fearless, right? I I think about what does it mean to have like a childlike heart or like childlike fearlessness? Um, And that's something that I always want to tap back into. But I think in a lot of ways that set a lot of the groundwork for my love for Disney and how they built a universe and what jubilee could eventually be one day too.
0: Children really are the most fearless among us, the most free, the most likely to dream. They imagine worlds beyond our own and have wild, raw hopes of who and what they could become. Unencumbered by adult things like responsibilities and consequences, children have infinite possibilities. I can't help but wonder if it's that lack of life experience, naivete, maybe that's the superpower of childhood. Sure, the fear of the unknown can be immobilizing, but it could be the things that we don't know or the things we think we know that scare us into complacency. Childhood is a period of intense exploration. We're finding our limits, those walls that say, you can't go there, you can't do that. Often, the walls we put up aren't because we lack the ability, but because we failed once or we're told we couldn't. I think of the parable of the elephant who from birth is tied to a stick with a small rope around one of its legs. When he's young, the elephant tries and tries, but can never break free of the rope. And then, eventually, the elephant learns he cannot break away. Even after growing up, even after becoming a powerful, tall elephant strong enough to easily break free, he never breaks free of his bonds because he believed he couldn't. Like the elephant, Jason's experiences with asthma had already begun to introduce him to his own limits. But it didn't stop him from dreaming of what he could become, of fairy tales and adventures. And he would soon stumble on a rather unique childhood dream. So I want to take us to first day of school. Uh, your, your parents, obviously educators, are like, this is going to be like Disneyland, but better. What was the, the, the experience, you know, like comparison point?
1: I was so excited for school. My parents, yeah, are both professors, but at the time they were grad students. And I was just taught that school is the place where you learn, you grow, that again, anything is possible with education. Um, That was always like the bedrock of, you know, what our family believed. I later on had like a much, I would say my, my thought about education has evolved a little bit, but I remember that time being really really exciting. Do you remember
0: coming home with visions of what you wanted to be?
1: yeah. I remember the, one of the first days of school, this was probably kindergarten. I had an incredible teacher, Mrs. Plyce. The question she would ask us is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's such a, you know, a beautiful question. And I knew in my heart what I wanted to be. I had seen all these films and just thought it was so heroic. And in my heart, I knew that I wanted to be like a policeman. And the reason is because like, I thought that they were so, I thought they were heroes. I thought they, you know, they saved people, that they protected you against the bad guy. The the embodiment of justice. Exactly. Uh That was a dream for me initially when we were like asked what is it that you want to be when you grow up or if you could be anything in the world what would you what would you want to be uh, i initially said i wanted to be a dinosaur <laughs> that's a good answer too <laughs> right right so of course my drawing ended up being like this dinosaur with a police bag <laughs> and a gun and you know everyone else is drawing like i want to be an astronaut i want to be a ballerina i'm like no i want to be dinosaur a cop. dinosaur <laughs> exactly And it was beautiful because my, you know, again, Mrs. Pre- Mrs. Plice was saying, you know, you can be whatever you want. Um, and why not?
0: Did your parents back that
1: up? So I, I went home with that drawing and I remember being at the dinner table and sitting with my parents and, you know, they would ask, you know, what did you learn at school today? And I said, oh, I think I know what I, what I want to be when I grow up. And, you know, I remember my dad saying, oh, what do you want to be? I said, oh, when I grow up. And, you know, by that time I had recognized, that, okay, it's not kosher to say that you want to be a dinosaur. <laughs> Um, And I said, oh, I want to be a police officer. And I, this is so clear to me. I distinctly remember him pausing and saying, oh, you can't be a police officer. And I was so kind of shocked by that because, again, everything at school, everyone was like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be, right? And it wasn't, he didn't quite say this at the time, but what became really apparent later was that He was saying, oh, there are certain jobs that you should and can, you can and should pursue. Um, Later I learned that, you know, my parents really wanted me to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, maybe a businessman, things that were quote unquote respectable. And this kind of stemmed from their experience as immigrants coming to America. And at the time I was like, oh, this is so unfair. I would just want to save people. And now I recognize it comes from like decades of sacrifice where they struggled so much to even get a job, let alone put food on the table, and they saw that these are the only jobs that exist in America or in society that you are guaranteed to be able to take care of your family without any concern. And it's ironic that I share that now because when I look at the world now, there are so many jobs like this that you would have said, oh yeah, this is what you have to do or this is like the most secure job. And I don't believe that to be the case anymore.
0: Like all children, Jason dreamt big. But living in an immigrant household, those dreams faced reality. Not necessarily the reality of what was possible, but the reality of what was respectable. Many immigrant households laud three professions as respectable for their first-generation children to pursue, doctor, lawyer, engineer. It's not because they are cruel, but because they want what's best for their children. Many risk so much to come to America, and pursuing anything other than these stable, secure careers can feel like a compromise to their sacrifice. Although his parents tempered those childhood dreams, they would encourage service and serve others.
1: When I was a kid, during the summers, you know, all my friends were like at pool parties and like playing baseball and I would do those things as well. But um, every summer, my my mom would ask me, what is going to be your community service activity for the summer? And I, I literally was like, what do you mean? And she goes, yeah, we want to make sure that you spend your time purposefully. I remember many summers in a row, we actually volunteered at the local library. And being like a, I was probably 12 or 13. Honestly, I don't know how much a 12 or 13 year old can be that helpful at a library, but it was the most boring job ever. We would literally get dropped off at, you know, 9 a.m. when the library opened, get picked up at 4 p.m. And imagine you're sitting there with, you know, they were so lovely, but a bunch of middle-aged slash elderly folk who are working at the library. And every day we would, you know, shelve the books. Like we would sort, shelf, put all the books back up. And my like respite or my break would be like to find a couple of books I really love and like hide in the corner and read. What did you read? Oh, man. I distinctly remember reading like A Wrinkle in Time. That was like a really powerful book for me. Uh, But I think it reminded or it taught me that, first of all, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. And secondly, that we have to spend our time and our ability to, to help others and to serve the community. Going up until
0: end of high school, when you're starting to think about colleges, when you're starting to think about, okay, I have to choose a major, I have to choose what I want to do next with my life. What were you thinking you wanted to do and where you wanted
1: to go? You know, it's funny because I think I thought at that time that I was choosing what I wanted. When I look back, I actually don't know if I really ever asked myself truly what it is that I wanted to do. So in high school, my I became really one-tracked mind. I was like, I got to get really good grades, be an honor roll student, essentially just be a great college applicant. And my dream was just, okay, get to the as good of a school as you can. So I applied to all those IVs and, you know, my brother had gone to Harvard. So I was like, oh, i love to oh go to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. That is a no high pressure, bar. <laughs> right? When my brother was applying, there was no expectation. Yeah, we think that we're, we work really hard and we're smart, but like, this is Harvard. Yeah, families like ours don't go to Harvard. And he got in and I was like, oh my God. Okay, that means I can get in because, you know, when it's a sibling thing, I'm like, oh, he's smart, but I'm, I'm smarter <laughs> than him or I'm just as smart. Then I was like, oh. And it changed when I was like, oh, I think I could get into Harvard. And I didn't. And honestly, that was really gut-wrenching for me, both on a personal front, but also just on like, you know, how good am I? How smart am I? Where should I go? Luckily, I would say luckily, thankfully, I got into University of Pennsylvania. I went to Wharton, Which is an amazing business school. Which was amazing. And it wasn't, honestly that I had dreamed of going to Penn. It wasn't that I had dreamed of studying business, to be honest. It was I got rejected from Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton. Like that was my list. And I said, okay, I guess that's where I'm supposed to go. And I I ended up loving Penn. It, It was such a great experience for me. It was like the right place for me to be. And I was actually really initially discouraged by it. I thought it meant that I fell short. And I think there's so many times in our life when we were like, ah, I failed. In retrospect, I recognize, man, there was such, it was so, so lucky and so blessed that it ended up this way. Do I think that my life would have been better had I gone there? I actually think not at all. Like, I think that things kind of ended up exactly as they intended. And this was really necessary for me to learn and grow. And like, now that I say this, you know, it all sounds really laughable because it's like, what a blessing to get into any college, let alone, you know, Penn, Harvard, any of these things. But at the time, you, I kind of thought, oh, this is it. If I don't get in here, I'm, I'm a failure. And um, of course, that's not true.
0: While his classmates at Penn found navigating the world of economics as simple as mowing a lawn, Jason's economic experience boiled down to, well, mowing a lawn. So not much at all.
1: It's really interesting. When I went to Penn, I had no idea about anything in the financial world. I wasn't one of those kids who like traded on the stock market or, you know, had a Robinhood account. Like (laughs) my one dabbling in business was we had a lawn mowing business, but we mowed like two lawns. (laughs) (laughs) But when I got to Penn, there's this thing that happens where everyone does X. Everyone studies finance. Everyone wants to become a banker or a consultant. So for me, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to study finance. I want to become an investment banker or a consultant, even though I had no idea what those things were. But I saw people that I admired doing that. And I was like, oh, this is probably the track to success. So that that, that just became my North Star at Penn too. But I always kind of thought, oh, one day if I'm able to make six figures, that will mean I'm so insanely wealthy and, and successful. And these jobs were giving six-figure salaries right out of college. I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be fulfilled. Were you, did you feel unfulfilled? I thought that when I went to Penn that I would feel incredibly fulfilled. That like I had at least reached a pinnacle of education and like, you know, I had gotten accepted all this stuff. It became the same thing where I was like, oh man, you know, that feeling where you're not, it wasn't that I was unhappy, but I wasn't truly happy or content. Oh, I guess getting into the great college was only the step to now getting the good job and the six figure salary. So that's where I kind of set my sight ended up getting a job at Bain, which was my dream. First day in, same thing. I was like so excited, so happy. And then lo and behold the same thing happened where I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm not as fulfilled as I thought I was going to be. What was so ironic was when I got into college, the reason why people were so excited about banking and consulting was because it was like the guaranteed way to become successful. And when I graduated in 2009, it was the height of the recession. So all of these jobs that all of my peers and I were like pining after, suddenly companies like Lehman and Bear Stearns literally went under. So why not actually consider who it is that you want to be? What is it that you want to do?
0: We all know that feeling when you reach the moment of victory, getting that dream job, nailing an audition, buying the dream house, the moment when every cell in your body is screaming, yes, I did it. But whatever your vision of victory is, the moment after is also inevitable. When your smile relaxes, your outstretched arms fall to your sides, and you have to face the question, now what? A good school and solid career had been Jason's North Star, but with the uncertainty of the 2008 recession and the triumph of getting to UPenn dissipating, Jason's North Star dimmed.
1: My second day on the job was my 22nd birthday. I woke up that morning to, you know, dozens of texts. You know, I love you, popular guy, you're the best. Well, <laughs> most of them were from my mom, um, saying you're the best. You know, I hope you have a wonderful birthday. And I remember, I think it was late morning or early afternoon, we started seeing just videos of an entire country that was in destruction. It's being called a catastrophe of major proportions. The Caribbean island nation of Haiti has been rocked by its biggest earthquake in more than 200 years. The 7.0 quake hit just south of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and was followed by two dozen strong aftershocks. Shoddy construction in this
0: impoverished nation meant buildings toppled to the ground. A hospital was flattened. Even the presidential palace couldn't withstand the force
1: and i felt both on one hand why is it that i'm so lucky and on the other hand what is it that i can do again it was my second day on the job i had very little money in my bank account. honestly the best thing that i could think of to do which is crazy was to go to a new york subway stop to sing and busk to raise a hundred dollars for haiti i mean if you know me you know that i have actually no singing talent so for me to arrive at this conclusion is so bizarre But it came from a burning desire that I have almost the responsibility to do something. But part of what I wanted to do was do something that was outside of the comfort zone so that I can just show folks that, hey, maybe we can sometimes step outside of our box and do something for good sometimes. So I knew that I was going to film it and I knew that I wanted to raise money for this cause. But I also thought, oh, this should have like a vehicle that I put this out under. So I had all these names that were like pennies for progress or view good, view change. And I was like, ah, oh, these sound so corny. And like, I don't know. I mentioned I was a Christian. I'm a Christian. And I had heard the sermon when I was in college about the year of Jubilee. And it's a year that people would celebrate because it was a year that happened maybe once every hundred years where um, debts were forgiven. And people who had been wrongfully in prison were set free. So it was a year of celebration. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, what if we had something like that to look forward to? And what if we lived in that kind of um, belief? So I was like, oh, that's cool. And this is very, very ragtag. So it's going to be a project. So I said, okay, this is going to be the Jubilee project. And by the way, I thought it was really cool that it also had my initials in it. So yeah, this I right, noticed that. I was so serving in that way. <laughs> so that's not what I led with, but that's, that was part of the truth. That was probably yeah. 10% of the reason <laughs> as well. So I called it the Jubilee Project. And I said, hey, I'm going to raise $100 for Haiti. I'm going to put a video out under this title. And let's just see what happens. Within a week, something really, really magical happened for me. Um, Within a week, we had tens of thousands of views. And we had raised thousands of dollars for Haiti. And of course, I'm like, oh my God, I'm viral.
0: And this is in 2010. So tens of thousands of views is a lot.
1: At the time, it was insane. Yeah. And that, I think, was the first let's say light of a thousand lights that i started to recognize okay this is really cool what if we could use video and content and storytelling to create something good in the world
0: though jason's haiti video came from an instant of inspiration the heart the emotion behind it had been developing for years giving to his community caring for the underserved those were beliefs woven into the fabric of his familial identity Think about it. His mother's side had all this money, and what did they decide to do? Open a school. Plus, every summer his parents taught him the importance of intentionally choosing a community service project. That programming, that constant question of how to use your gifts to serve others, primed Jason for a moment that would be a turning point. Jason decided to raise money for Haiti, armed with nothing more than a camera and his amateur busking skills.
1: The very first person that I brought on was my older brother, Eddie. He was way more experienced in video and editing and also had access to cameras through his job. He was working at the White House at the time and had done a lot of media and social media throughout the Obama campaign. I brought him on board. And eventually we also brought on one of our good friends, Eric Liu, who was uh, at med school at the time. And he just had such an intense passion for storytelling, but also for building community.
0: So like, what's the new direction?
1: So at the time, YouTube was starting to really pop off with amazing, you know, founders and YouTubers. But I thought, oh, okay, what if we could be you know a youtube channel that created content that raised money and awareness for various causes so that was kind of just the idea we would become a youtube channel but then i set it up as a nonprofit as a 501c3 because the point was not that we would just go viral but that we could actually raise money but also make money as a nonprofit and grow you know the number of videos that we can make etc so that was a really big vision the idea was that we would i would just do this on the side I was still a consultant. I enjoyed that job. I enjoyed having like a creative outlet on the side that I could do something fun and interesting. Imagine being like a first year in this corporation and like I was sending out YouTube videos I was making. I was like, hey everyone, what's up? It's me, Jason. (laughs) To, To the company. yeah. Would anyone like to donate? And I remember one of my managers at the time was like, hey, Jason, maybe you just like don't include the partners on these emails because they're going to think that you're just running around making YouTube videos, which is what I was doing. But I would do it nights and weekends. Like sometimes I would just stay late at the office and like edit videos. It was a cool time because I didn't have an expectation of what this was going to become. It wasn't like, Jason, you have to create this company or like you have to create something big. It was, oh, this is super fun. I'm getting to work with my brother and one of my best friends, making videos that I love. And also it's very good. And then you start seeing the,
0: these videos pop up that are a little bit bigger in terms of like scope and scale. And one that stood out to me that I think was really interesting because it coincided with like four months off from work, which I'm very curious how you got that. But um, when you went to Africa, how did that occur?
1: I wasn't sure where my life was headed as far as what kind of work I wanted to do. And I, something I'd always wanted to do was international community work. So I ended up working at the Clinton Health Access Initiative for CHAI, which is what we called it, out in Zambia doing an HIV project. Can you just tell me one of the experiences that maybe did stick out to you? I'll tell you kind of a humbling story, actually, that really taught me a lot. I remember I wanted to, you know, all of the work that we were doing out there was about HIV and AIDS. And I wanted to make a video kind of exploring folks who had AIDS. I remember one time walking into like a community center slash you you can call it a hospital, but it doesn't look like a hospital. It's literally just an outdoor building. And I remember walking around with my camera and it wasn't on, but I remember everyone looking at me being like, who are you and why are you filming? And it really humbled me because I intended to film and I was going to film, I started to recognize, wait a second, sometimes in our efforts to do good, we actually, or quote unquote good, we sometimes actually neglect the very thing that we're trying to do good for. And it really reminded me of how we have to honor humans first and honor people's first. And that's one of the values that ended up becoming a huge component of Jubilee Media. But I was just kind of, oh, wait a second. I'm like, I'm just here like exploiting people essentially if I I just go about my business trying to make a video that I think will go viral, but that doesn't actually serve people and, and individuals. Does it affect authenticity? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think that was probably one of the reasons when I started Jubilee Media that I decided that we would focus on unscripted content and formats because it would allow people the space and the safety to share their authentic truth and their authentic self. And because I didn't want people to think that we're manipulating what people are saying or creating a story that people didn't feel was true.
0: What strikes me from Jason's account of his trip to Zambia is his humility and the nuance of morality. I feel like most people might feel pretty good about signing up with a global health organization, serving a low income country struggling from HIV and AIDS. But what Jason received in Zambia was something far more profound. Got a serious lesson in empathy. I can imagine Jason walking through this makeshift hospital, seeing the eyes of all those suffering around him. And as he held his camera in his hand, that question rattling around in his head, am I really serving these people or am I serving myself? How would you have answered this question? For Jason, the answer was clear. Even with good intentions, he could not build the Jubilee Project off the exploitation of others. While he grappled with the need to find another way of creating vulnerable, authentic content, a return to the U.S. confronted Jason with a much more personal question. Could he be his authentic self?
1: One life was around Jubilee Project and the nonprofit that we loved. On the other hand, we were like still... Nine to five, the job that I think everyone, including our parents and society, had told us were really, really important. And those two things were almost diametrically opposed to each other in terms of the way that our life could go. And it got to a breaking point a couple of years in where suddenly it became wait a second, I'm not doing what I said I, we should do.
0: Was there a moment where that happened or was it just after?
1: It's funny because it wasn't me who initially had started that, actually. I think it was Eric who he was going through a series of exams and he was like, guys, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And meanwhile, I was at Bain and it wasn't that I was unhappy. I was just like, oh, this is fine. Like, I'm on my track. And it really posed a serious question of what would you do if you were not afraid? And I I recognized, wait a second, if I weren't afraid, I would actually leave here and do this full time. And that's when that kind of conversation happened and once we started having that conversation, it, it happened really quickly. We all ended up quitting and leaving. You know, I remember it to be the same day. <laughs> Eddie and I leaving our jobs and calling our parents. And, you know, I called my parents first. I'm oh like, guess what? You know, she goes, oh, I love you. I love you too. Uh, by the way, I just quit my job. She goes, oh my God. Which in Korean is like, oh my God. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to make videos on YouTube. And she goes, oh my God. It's insane. And, and now... You know, when I share that story now, I think people are like, yeah, there's, you can make a great career on YouTube. And, and that was maybe the case back in the day, but really was Barely. Yeah.
0: Barely. Like that was like before like the MCNs. Exactly. Like Maker this Studios. was 2012.
1: Yeah. when really people, 99% of the people I, I told said, are you crazy? Like, what are you talking about? Why would you ever leave? So I'm really thankful that it happened when it happened because I think another year or two in, I, I don't think I would have had the courage to leave. Um, but we all quit. We packed up our Honda Element with all of our clothing and all of our belongings. We said, we'll only take the things that we can fit in this car. And we, we drove out west to California to start doing Jubilee Project full time. With that like moment, what did
0: that feel like for you?
1: There are two fears when I, I had when I quit my job. One was that people would laugh at me, which kind of happened. But two was that I wouldn't be able to survive. And all of these people like Tim, who let us live in his home for almost two years for free, that just continue to happen. This office space that we're in right now came from someone else who said, Hey, I love what you're doing. I had a dream that I want to support you guys. I'm going to give you guys a room here. So your parents this whole time, what are they What are they
0: thinking <laughs> uh, as you're you're going from bunk to bunk? And like, you're making maybe a little money through apparel at this
1: point. We were making money much, through yeah. apparel. Uh, you know, initially, they were obviously very, very worried. Despite that, you know, when we were selling clothing, we just didn't have any space or any team to be able to help send it out. So my mom, God bless her soul, literally became like our fulfillment center where we would send all of our clothing to her she would box it up and she would individually package them and send them out to people who are buying it. And she would write sometimes these little notes that said, thank you for supporting my, my, my sons or thank you for supporting Jubilee Project. And They never really said it, but I think that that was their way of saying, you know what, even though we disagree with what you're doing and we don't get it, I will still love you and support you regardless.
0: And so doesn't seem like you're optimizing for money at this point.
1: No, we so were not. <laughs>
0: what are you optimizing for in these like early days?
1: I think it was two things. One, individually, we were all going on our own journey of what would it look like for us to do what we want, pursue what we want, dream the way we want. And then secondly, how can we make the greatest impact with Jubilee Project? And at the time, it was through viewership and it was through funds raised and also through the community that we were building. People, young people who were like bought into what we were saying about this mission that we can all make a difference.
0: Anyone who seriously thought about starting a new business knows how impossible it can seem. It's especially disheartening when the fate of the thing you built is uncertain. And I can imagine if a parent was unfamiliar with the startup scene, or even if they were familiar, they'd be very concerned to hear their kids coming home one day from their Ivy League educations that promise secure futures and then have them break the news We decided to pursue a career on YouTube. I can almost feel their stomach drop at the thought. But when you have a dream that you believe in so strongly, who is anyone outside that dream to tell you to give up? Dino Cop might have been a bit childish, but Jubilee had traction in a growing audience. Support was mounting.
1: Around that time, we started getting a lot more into scripted films. So for several months, I was like writing with with a writer, Ivan, what I thought was like a really cool story. Eddie directed it. And we made this beautiful film that we called Blind Devotion. And when we put it out, we were just like, oh, this would be cool if we could get, you know, 10 or 100,000 views and we can raise more awareness. And when we put it out, it just went like mega viral. I think it, got over like 20 million views on YouTube 20 million yeah and then it got ripped onto Facebook and it got more millions of views there wow my brain literally could not compute what was happening did that change the trajectory of the company it's funny because it was soon after that that I ended up going into one of the most difficult times of my career with Jubilee and my my life actually was when Eric promised his parents he would go back to med school. So he went back, he left. And also Eddie, my brother, met his wife and he's kind of started to decide, oh wait, I think that I need to do my own thing. I need to be pursuing my own path. It's hard because so much of my identity was tied to our collective experience. Jubilee, believes the three of us and without one of us, we can't be, we can't stand. And then suddenly I felt like I was like alone on a sinking ship. And it doesn't sound drastically different, but after about a year of this kind of like really, really difficult period, I said, you know what, I do think that there is a tremendous opportunity and space to do good here. But if it were up to me, I wouldn't pursue it as a nonprofit. What if I could change the way that we think, the way that we connect, the way that we expose ourselves to different ideas? That was when kind of the seeds of what Jubilee Media was going to be started to get planted. Around that time, I also met my wife, Mel. And that was also a crazy journey.
0: You're meeting your wife at one of, like, it seems like a very, like a period that's in flux. Yes. And then you see this Facebook ad. Um, And you decide, okay, now it's time to pursue something.
1: That's right. And it wasn't Jubilee Media, it was my wife. Um, (laughs) My wife, Mel, she was a journalist for Yahoo Finance and I was on Facebook one day and there was an ad for Wealthfront, which is like a financial management company. It was an interview with the CEO and they pan over to the reporter and this brilliant, beautiful woman. So I looked her up, I found her Twitter I found out that she was Korean. She loved like R&B. She's a Christian. I was like, oh my God, I think she's perfect. Delusional, of course. But I also found that she was in New York. So I was like, oh. So I tweeted at her, said, hey, big fan of your work. And we just became Twitter acquaintances, let's say. Um, And then a couple of months later, I was actually in New York for a wedding. And when I was there, I said, I slid into her (laughs) DM. And I said, hey, would love to grab coffee. She said, hey, I'm actually really busy. I'm flying back, but I could do drinks if you wanted to. What I loved about my conversation with her is as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with Jubilee Project, before I had any vision for what Jubilee Media was, and I remember her just kind of like really clearly asking and saying, why do you care about what all these other people think? Why do you care about that? Like she just had this like no bullshit radar that I was slapped in the face with in a lot of ways. And I was like, wow, that's really special. I remember she said, I don't want to do long distance. I said, oh yeah, I can move to New York. Like, I'm not doing anything here. Like, I'm not... Not that I'm not doing anything. There's nothing that's keeping me in L.A. It was actually in talking with her and when we started dating that she really encouraged me to ask these questions. That I said, you know what? I think what I would really do if I were not afraid is I would actually start a media company. And I would raise capital. And I would do it, like, in this legit way. she goes, why don't you do that? So that's what I started doing in 2017. I started raising capital. And... Let me tell you, raising was not easy. My first, I had 83 no's. No, 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 no. I will never touch digital media. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that young people want to do good. I don't believe that there's space for empathy. Uh, It's not really a time. Oh, you're too early. You're too late. Whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then finally, I got my very, very first yes. It was actually a check from uh, Professor Laura Huang. What did that feel like? Oh my God. It was like... Someone believes in me. Yeah, I can do this. One check begets another check and slowly it just starts to happen. I I, I describe it as pushing a huge boulder for years and eventually it starts to rock and it starts to tip and it's starting to roll now and it gets more and more speed and more and more people are interested in coming in. We had, you know, Steve Chen, co-founder of YouTube, Kevin Lin, founder of Twitch, all these incredible businessmen, Andrew Chow, founder of Boba Guys, started giving me checks and saying, yeah, I believe in you too. You don't want, first of all, an investor who doesn't believe in you. But secondly, you don't want an investor who's not going to add value to you. So when you're out there raising money, yeah, the no is like, just imagine dating and like everyone says no, you start to think, oh my God, maybe I'm terrible. Like maybe this is a stupid idea. Maybe I'm worthless or ugly or whatever that is. Mark Schuster said it well. He's he's a great VC, but he said lemons ripen early, meaning like all of your no's will come first, actually. And there's a reason for that, right? Like it's because you're still crafting your story. You're still trying to learn how to fundraise. But that very first yes is like amazing rocket fuel to the rest of your round. And I, I don't want to get twisted. Like raising capital is such an important part of the journey, but it's not the destination. That is just like one part of the process exactly. And then once you raise the capital, now it's like all of the real work begins.
0: If you're in the world of business and startups, you're going to hear no a lot. It comes with the territory. But I'd like you to imagine having an idea for a project, something you're passionate about, something you have your heart and soul in, and then pitching that idea 83 times and being told no 83 times. I don't think I've been told no even close to 83 times. Definitely not in a row. Maybe I'm in the 20s or 30s or something. I'm sure 83 no's would make anyone doubt whether they were on the right path. And I can't conceive of the heartbreak Jason must have felt being turned away again and again. But I also can't imagine the determination that it must take to try 84 times. And eventually, he got that yes. And knowing that even one person believed in his dream was enough for Jason to chase his passion. And should we be surprised that the creators who eventually backed him have started platforms like YouTube and Twitch? Platforms now essential to the creator economy and entertainment. Imagine if Twitch never made it off the ground or YouTube. They all started small, but today they're portals for exponential human connection. Just the sort of thing that Jason was trying to accomplish. And these founders, they could understand where Jason was coming from. So with these new investors, Jason was able to get the capital he needed. A staggering $750,000. How do you figure out where you put
1: it? What I knew at the time was that if I was the only one making videos, which was my experience to date, um, that we would not grow nearly fast enough. And also that the ceiling would be way too low because I'm only so good of a of a video creator. So what I set out to do is find people that I thought could eventually make better videos than me.
0: Where do you source these people or where are you finding them? Is it through your own network or are you just putting it up on Angel list? Like
1: a little bit of both, but luckily one of the benefits of having done Jubilee Project was I, I still had a, a speaker phone that I could use, you know. Like one of our first editors, Taylor, she would edit for us as Jubilee Project. She was working another job, and I was like, You have to work here. You have to work here. You have to. And she was very reluctant. How do you convince people,
0: especially when it's like you're most likely you're taking a pay cut to.
1: Yeah, and they, you have to be crazy. Why would you join a startup that like has makes no money and you're saying is going to change the world. But literally i more more it to them being incredible people who believed in just the vision of what I was saying and what I saw. And also I think that my vision for what Jubilee was going to be fit the vision of, or their worldview and what they want to be a part of.
0: What were some of the things that you focused on building that foundation?
1: One of my mentors, Dave Gibbons, he always talked about how do you build a great brand or organization? And he said, you have to start with culture. Why would anyone come to work for you? And what is the way that you're going to treat them? And how are you going to interact with everyone? How do you know what decisions Jubilee should make? Oh, it's because of our values and our culture. But if we create a world-class culture, then we're going to attract world-class talent. So that was always the mission. It was like, okay, world-class culture, start drawing amazing talent. If you have amazing talent with a great culture, you're going to swing and you're going to swing, and you're going to miss a bunch, but eventually you'll start making great products just in the magic of that. And as you start to create great product, you'll eventually develop a great brand.
0: You have a few hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube at this time, but you're pivoting the content that you're going to be doing like pretty starkly. So what's that first piece of content that's going to bridge the gap between what was
1: and what will be. So one of the very first videos that actually ended up working was a video called Comfortable. If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be?
0: The in-studio is kind of what Jubilee is known for now? Did, we're you using in-studio in a novel way? Like, was this one of the first times that you really did it in this format? Like what was different about this video?
1: I think it was just that raw authenticity that we got to capture in that moment. So it, we didn't take anything from that about like, it has to be in or out of studio or even anything about the format, but oh man, when we tap into something that feels real and authentic, that's something. So then eventually we started thinking about not just individual videos, but also IP or, or show format, experimenting with things that, so that we wouldn't have to go back to the drawing board every week and say, oh, what's a new video, but rather, oh, people love this show now. What is another type of episode that we can do for the show? There's no necessity for any of us to put our face on camera if it doesn't serve the content. So it wasn't like we're never going to have any hosts, never going to have any faces. It was just, what is the best for this content? Let's run toward that as quickly as possible. And we started to find that sometimes formats without any individuals who are the host of it actually allowed it to cut through some of the noise for us. So tell
0: me about some of those first big successes with um, those format-driven shows.
1: Probably the first big show that popped off was Middle Ground.
0: Can you explain the concept?
1: It was actually inspired by a trip that we took with, there's an amazing organization called Defy Ventures where they'll take entrepreneurs into prisons. And there was an exercise we did while we were in the prison, which was like step to the line. And it put the inmates on one side and it put us, the entrepreneurs, quote unquote, or like mentors on the other side. And it was like step to the line if. And I remember one of the questions was like, step to the line if you've ever broken a law before. And they're like, yeah, like, speeding or like driving through a red light counts. I was like, okay, I've done that before. And everyone stepped to the line. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Yes, I recognize that some of of the crimes committed are on different scales, but some of the crimes that we committed on this side were I've smoked marijuana before or I've sold it to a friend before and someone else had the same thing. And the only difference was their circumstance or sometimes their upbringing or sometimes the color of their skin, actually. I was like, wait a second, something is super unjust or unfair about this. But also we have far more in common than we might think. And How did that video actually
0: do? What was the response?
1: I think that was one of the first videos or show formats that broke at least 100,000 views or a million views. And that was the start. And we said, "Okay, we got to do more of these.
0: With this new series bringing in the views, it was clear that people wanted more. How to go about doing this, though? It's a tough call. Do you take the tried and true path? Do you do what worked before bigger and better than before? Or do you innovate? Come up with new video ideas, new formats, and new ways to engage a growing audience. And sure, Jason had an early win. But for new businesses, an early win doesn't necessarily mean smooth sailing. Just think about this stat. In 2019, it was estimated that up to 90% of startups will fail. 90%. With $750,000 of funding at risk, can you imagine how nervous I'd be? How scary it could be? But it was clear to Jason that people believed in him and Jubilee. And what else could Jason do but make the best, most informed decision he could? To step into the unknown by experimenting with the possibilities of their content. And so, I mean, you had tried a bunch of formats before. So like this one really struck a chord. Can you describe a little bit about where uh, Jubilee is today with those show formats?
1: One thing I'm really proud is if shows like Middle Ground and Spectrum, which is like really some of our first formats we ever created, are still around to this day. You know, we're nearing probably like 70 or 80 episodes of some of these shows. Appetite and interest is constantly changing. So we're working constantly on new show ideas and new pilots that we're going to be pitching and putting out onto the channel. Like, let's continue to honestly fail until we find additional shows. And we've, in that course, found shows like Versus One or Odd One Out You've accomplished so much and in such a short time, what are you most
0: looking forward to in the future? And what do you think you've learned from all these experiences? Like what's that piece of advice?
1: Yeah, I think coming full circle, we often talk about within the company, what does it mean to become the Disney for empathy or the Disney for human connection? And I think similar to Disney, you know, Disney started with like Steamboat Willie, right? It was like a short clip, black and white. And eventually they went to film and TV, they made Snow White and Bambi and eventually they went into product and they sold Mickey Mouse toys and lightsabers, and eventually they went into experiential and they made Disney World. I believe that we can build an entire universe or an ecosystem on top of human connection. That starts with digital. One thing that's really cool is that people are doing these formats in their homes or in their classrooms. Like people are playing Spectrum and Middle Ground. So we said, why don't we create our own card set or our card game that actually allows people to do that. So we're going to be launching that in January, probably. And then eventually experiential. What if we can actually create spaces where people can do this and actually connect with other humans?
0: So if you were to give yourself one piece of advice at the beginning of this journey, not Jubilee Project, but at the beginning of the 2017 journey when you were starting to think about a for-profit company raising venture capital, what piece of advice that would you give yourself to maybe get where you are a little bit faster with a little bit more ease?
1: Have the humility to recognize that you're not going to be right all the time or sometimes very often but also recognize that that's part of the process and that you have to have the grit to survive all of the obstacles or all of the disappointments. If you humbly continue to pursue what it is that your, your why and your mission, that you'll get to the right destination in the right time. So don't worry about going faster. Don't worry about being as big or as successful as X, Y, and Z because everyone's running their own race. And by the way, sometimes when you get faster too quickly, you also fall very, very quickly. So believe that there's a plan.
0: So reflecting on Jason's story, I'm struck by his mission, his mission to share and scale empathy. This was a mission that has stuck with Jason from the inception of Jubilee. He initially wanted to help raise $100 and now billions of views later, he's inspiring the whole world. The reason that this mission hasn't been lost, that this mission has scaled with the company, is that every step of the way, Jason reframed and checked in with that mission. I think this is rare. Many startups start with a mission. Maybe it attracts some investors or the first few employees. But as they iterate, as they try to create a profitable business that can exist in the real world, that perfect ideal can be corrupted. It's easy to lose sight of it. What's different about Jason is that this mission is core to his identity, core to his upbringing, core to the lessons of his parents about service and community. It's in Jason's DNA, and now it's in the DNA of Jubilee. So I'm confident that as Jubilee grows and expands, Jason will continue to keep that mission close to his heart and never forget the why of this whole crazy adventure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend if you have any questions or comments DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia support from Irene Van Burkle Matt Fernandez Renee Cannon, Sophia Donner Laura Lynch Zoe Maddox Ashley Jimenez Michael Chung Nicholas Guzman Aaron Devereaux,
1: Sanessa Gisley,
0: and Louis Choi.
1: Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai,
0: and Mecca Shelton.
1: Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azerdia. Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand. With support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang,
0: Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candozo. see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next
1: week.